You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Well, let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11. And as you find it, I'm going to ask you to stand, and uh, we'll read the scripture together tonight. Luke chapter 11, and uh, we are continuing in, a, in our series on prayer this, e- this evening, and uh, Luke 11, 1 through 4. I don't know how long it'll take, but if I keep going on trips, it may be 2022 by the time we get done with these three or four verses, but... Luke 11, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to ask you actually tonight, let's read responsively. And I'll read verse 1, you read verse 2, I'll read 3, and then you read verse 4, and then we'll stop and pray. So I'll read verse 1, here we go. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Give us day by day our daily bread. Very good. Good reading together. Well, we'll be uh, in, uh, at the end of verse 2, it says, Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. That's the phrase we'll be focus on, focusing on this evening. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word. pray that you bless it and help us tonight to have open hearts to what your Holy Spirit wants to illuminate in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Appreciate your standing. Well, as I said, we're continuing in our series tonight on the model prayer in Luke 11. And the disciples have asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And to follow a point that we made early on, I love what we can glean just from the questions that they asked the question, I should say, that they asked, teach us to pray. You know, it's interesting that they did not ask for some superpower. They didn't ask for miracles. They didn't ask for healing or, or great wisdom. They come and they ask Jesus Christ to teach them how to pray. And the fact that they asked for prayer shows they knew that Christ's time with his Father was important. They saw him behind closed doors. And you have to know that no one saw Jesus Christ like the disciples saw Christ. No one knew what he did in private like the disciples saw what he did in private. They'd heard him pray many times. And the source of our strength is not what we know or what we do or our intelligence or our leadership abilities. Our power lies in the private times with our Father. And it's good for us to remember that just in asking the question, the disciples were making that point to us. It's not about your experience. It's not about how, much, how long you've been saved. It's not about how many times you've read the Bible, although the, the Bible does provide power for us. It's possible to read our Bibles and not have it mean anything. We can just read through our Bibles and not think about it. What the disciples are saying, though, is they're saying, Lord, 
we've seen the miracles, and yes, they're impressive, and yes, we've, we've seen you do things that nobody else has ever done, but we also have seen you behind closed doors, and what happens behind closed doors, that's what we want to know about. We want to know how to pray, because we've seen and heard you pray, and we know that your time with the Father in private is what has really provided the energy or the power for you, to, for you to do whatever you've done in public. Now, we know that Jesus Christ possesses all power. We understand that. But all the more reason for us to know that we must pray if Jesus Christ, who possesses all power, felt as though he needed time with the Father. So who are we to think that I can go do something in public? And I'm going to use the example of knocking on doors because it's something that we really want to emphasize. We need to to get out, we need to invite people to church, we need to be uh, either hitting the streets or hanging door hangers, whatever it takes, because we want people to hear about the message of the gospel. We, we know what God has done for us, and we want others to hear it too. Uh, but if we ever do something like that in public, it's a public work, if we ever do that without the strength of Christ, we're just going through motions. And it's just an example, though, of the many reasons that we need our private time to be equipping us for the public ministry. And that's why a series on prayer is much needed. You know, we'll never get to the point that we don't need that private time with the Father. It's not a one-time thing, it's recurring. I view it a little bit like salvation versus sanctification. You know, salvation is that one-time moment, it's a light switch. Sanctification is more like the dimmer and it takes a long time for it to, to get to its full brightness. As we get saved, we get saved once, but then we are sanctified over the course of our Christian lives into holiness and Christ-likeness. It happens continually. It's, a, it's, a, it's progress, not a light switch. It's also a little bit, I was thinking about this, it's a little bit like a love offering versus monthly support. You know, and very many times uh, we, we have missionaries come through and... And those missionaries will, will either be presenting for their field and we'll see that whether or not we take them on for support. Um, sometimes they come through and we just provide a love offering for them and we, and we put them up and we feed them and then they go to the next church. But there are times where we, we do take up, uh, um, we decide that the leaders of the church, the spiritual leaders, most often the deacons will get together and, and say this is a missionary we should get behind. And, uh, and by the way, I need to talk to you about that here in a little bit. David Hetzer was here a few weeks ago, the Compound Bow missionary, and, I, and I've talked with the deacons, and I, I really do feel strongly that he's the kind of man we need to support as a missionary. And uh, he was, it was a great message, the kind of message um, that I think can make a difference in many churches, but not just that, his family. You know, they come, a family like that comes through, and you think, um, that's the kind of missionary we need to get behind. He's going to go make a difference in Sri Lanka. Uh, and so there's a difference, though. A, lo- one, a love offering is a one-time gift. Monthly support is something that's ongoing. And that's kind of the way that, um, that I view our private time with the Father. You know, you get saved. You get saved once. And many Christians often stagnate in their growth because they think that's what I needed. But there's a, a, a relationship that must be built. And we often neglect that part. Once we're saved, we kind of move on and we forget we need it every day. Well, we've had so far in our series, we've come across two 
uh, two requests or two petitions. The first was, hallowed be thy name. The second was, thy kingdom come. And hallowed be thy name was what we talked about, I think, three or four weeks ago. And that is praying that God's name is hallowed. And, and as we pray that God's name is hallowed, we consider how holy he is. And it aligns us. It aligns our, our mindset because it reminds us of who he is compared to who we are. He's a holy God and we are sinners. And as we consider his holiness and we ask that his name is hallowed or, or holied, it aligns us. It puts us in a position where we're humble. And it reminds me really of, of the prophet Isaiah when he saw a glimpse of God He didn't just say, skip along on his way. He caught a glimpse of God and it cost him then to say, here am I, send me. And then last or two weeks ago, we talked about God's kingdom, thy kingdom come. This is the second request of the the Lord's prayer here. When we're properly aligned to view God um, and, and we view his holiness, our natural response is to seek his purposes. Just like Isaiah did, here am I, send me, and When you catch that glimpse, not only are you reminded of who he is compared to who you are, but it puts you in a place to want what he wants. When I catch a glimpse of God and I realize how holy he is and how high he is and how perfect his purposes are and how wonderful his love is, it makes me want to do nothing except anything he wants. It puts me in a position to be willing to go wherever he wants me to. Puts me in a place where I have to submit and I want to be like him. And I, and I want to do what he wants me to do because I know who he is. And his kingdom suddenly becomes so great. It becomes my life's purpose. You know, the obstacles are many when we think about advancing God's kingdom, which is souls saved. But, uh, you know, in the least of which is mankind's, not mankind's rebellion. That, that is at the top of the list of why advancing God's kingdom is difficult because people don't like to be told what to do. If you've ever watched children in a nursery, you know they don't take correction and they're not very good at submission. They, don't, they want what they want. We're born that way. And it reminded me of the illustration I used a couple of weeks ago about John Guest, a, a visiting English preacher, and he was in the, the Philadelphia area in the 60s, and he went to some stores where... They kind of specialize in the uh, Americana decoration. And, and he noticed the signs like, don't tread on me and taxation or no taxation without representation. But the one that stood out to him about America as a Brit was he, he saw the sign that said, we serve no sovereign here. And Americans have always taken, you know, I'm thinking about Independence Day tomorrow. We've always taken some form of pride and saying, nobody tells us what to do. We serve no sovereign here. But that, that preacher, John Guest, later said, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to people who have a, a, a profound aversion, if I can get it out, who have a profound aversion to sovereignty? When we preach the kingdom, we're preaching about a sovereign God. We're preaching about a king, and yet in America they have an aversion to sovereignty. And R.C. Sproul said in a book called Following Christ, the concept of lordship invested in one individual is repugnant to the American tradition, yet this is the boldness of the claim of the New Testament for Jesus that absolute sovereign authority and imperial power are vested in Christ. You know, we struggle with submission to authority. And being American, it doesn't help us accept it. But let me just remind you that the life of a disciple in Mark 8.34 bears the mark of self-denial. That is our life. 
Our life is one of saying no to ourselves. And as much as we don't like that or we don't prefer that, that is the mark of a disciple. And that leads right into the thought here in Luke 11, this next petition, when Jesus Christ said, Thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. The will of God is a difficult subject. And we could spend a whole series on discerning God's will for your life. And there are whole conferences and you know, singles conferences and camps and, and these things that are about God's will. Finding God's will, discerning God's will, who to marry, who, where to live, where to work, uh, what car to buy. Maybe you don't have to seek God's will for that, but I believe that God gives us many choices in life, and I believe that he gives us freedom to choose as long as it doesn't violate his revealed will. And there are many people that would say, well, God has much more concern, and I believe he does have concern in our daily life, but I also believe, folks, that if we walk in the Spirit... For the most part, if we're walking in the Spirit, uh, we will be sensitive to the things that, are, that please God. And, and He gives us freedom and He gives us choices. And as long as it doesn't violate our conscience or His revealed will, will I, I believe that we have a lot of freedom. But if you're trying to make a decision about God's will, let me just say this. Start with the Bible. This is where it starts. And if we were to, to stop overthinking and just use the Bible as our first filter, when we make a life decision, it would save a lot of headaches, I believe. You could say the Word of God is your first filter, but I, I heard five questions recently, and these are very, this really isn't so much about the message, ex- except that we're talking about the will of God here. And these are really good questions when you're trying to discern God's will. These are questions I heard from Pastor Jason Gaddis down in Southwest Baptist Church. And these are the questions he tells people to ask if you're trying to seek God's will. Number one, is it in the revealed, revealed will of God? Is it in the revealed will of God? In other words, it's not hard for us to determine whether or not I sh- we should be involved in the Great Commission. You don't have to, folks, we don't have to seek God's uh, wisdom or direction because it's very clear that we should be involved in the Great Commission. So if that is part of God's revealed will, then I am safe to say I'm praying about whether or not I should be involved in inviting people to church. Well, you don't have to pray very long. It's part of God's revealed will. Number two, are you delighting in the Lord's presence? Are you delighting in the Lord's presence? And I love the way he asks that because it, it gets two things across. Number one, it's, it's God's presence which means, do you have a walk with God? And very often, people try to seek God's will, and they're trying to find God's will, but they haven't, in their private time, spent time with God. How are you supposed to know the kind of things that God would want you to do if in private you haven't spent time with Him? It would be like, and I've used this example before, it would be like me trying to decide what gift to buy my wife if I don't know what kind of things she likes. I mean, I know what she likes, and it's still a difficulty to know what to buy her. So, how would we know? If, you're not, if you don't delight in God's presence, so it's, the first part of that is, is God's presence. That's the big part. The second part of that is delight. In other words, is, is your relationship with God one in which you are delighting? Right now, is your walk with God something that brings you joy? Does it bring you delight? And you say, well, I'm not sure the Christian life should be all about delight. Well, I mean, you go to Psalm 1 and you read that 
when the, one, the person walking, uh, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he shall meditate day and night. So we, it is biblical to delight in our walk with God, to delight in, our pres- in God's presence in our lives. Is it in the revealed will of God? Are you delighting in the Lord's presence? Third, have you sought godly counsel? Have you sought godly counsel? I can't tell you how many people that I've talked to in my life in ministry that make a big decision and I ask, well, who did you talk to about it? And they say, literally, nobody. They make a big decision, either a big purchase or a big move. You've met people like that. They make some big decision without really seeking counsel and there is safety in the multitude of counsel. You know, have you sought godly counsel? Third, fourth, are the circumstances pointing in that direction? And you say, well, I think it's a little dangerous to, to make a decision based on circumstances. Well, God also works in circumstances in our lives. He directs our lives. And he, he puts us in a path where circumstances take place. And if circumstances point, I think it's just one factor of many. But are the circumstances pointing in that direction? And then fifth, will it stretch your faith? Will it stretch your faith? I love that one. Because very often, if we're trying to decide God's will, should I go this direction, should I go that direction? And if, if, God's, if this one here would put us in a position where we are trusting and being more dependent on God, then I, I think it's, it's good for us to consider that. Because very often, God's people get in a place where they, they find the most comfortable route. It's like water finds the easiest path, the, the path of least resistance. And sometimes Christians do the same thing. So God's will, we're talking about God's will. I think those are great questions to ask because seeking God's will is tough. And there's more to cover on that on another day. But that's not what Christ is talking about in Luke 11. That's not the main gist. Yes, he's talking about God's will, um, but he's not really telling the disciples how to find God's will, is he? He's simply teaching them how to pray for God's will to be done and me giving you those five questions was just free. It was icing on the cake. So enjoy that. I don't even claim that it was original, it was, but it's good stuff. He's telling them, though, how to pray for God's will. Praying for God's will is both necessary and needful. And strangely enough, I think there are probably a lot of people who struggle with praying for God's will to be done. And hear me out on this. Sometimes I think people view statements like, if it's your will, that we, it's suddenly maybe an act, a lack of faith on our part. Well, God, if it's your will, or Lord willing, and somehow maybe that means that we have less faith. And there's even a movement out there, and you've probably heard about this, mostly in the charismatic circles, that say, name it, claim it. That you should be bold in your prayer requests. You shouldn't pray, if it's your will, God, you just get out there, and you say it, and if you say it, and you believe it with all your heart, 100%, that you're going to have whatever you say. That name it, claim it. You've probably heard of that before. Well, God doesn't make promises that specific to us. I can't, with boldness, because it's not in the Word of God, get out there and say, I, I name that 2019 Suburban out in the, in the car lot over here. I name it with faith, boldly. And I believe that God's going to give it to me. I, well, I have no ground to stand on. I mean, I wouldn't mind. I mean, if you were listening, then, you know... But we can't say that with confidence because it's not in the Word of God. So the name it and claim it uh, movement is false doctrine. Now, on the other hand, we can name it and claim it 
if we have sinned and we go before God and say, God, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know, I do believe in name it and claim it when it comes to that. Because God in his revealed will has given us a very clear promise. But be careful of, of thinking, well, if I pray for God's will, that sud- somehow it means I have less faith. Uh, because we have to be careful of that. Um, because you would be going against the Lord's instruction in Luke 11. If you were to say, I don't feel comfortable saying if it's your will. Jesus Christ told, tells the disciples to pray that way. And not only that, I want you to think, let's turn over to Luke 22. Keep your place here in Luke 11. But look, look over in Luke 22. Not only would you be going against the Lord's instruction here, but you would actually be going against the Lord Jesus Christ's example himself in Luke 22, verse 39. It says, and this is in the garden... And he came out and went as he was wont. Again, let me just remind you, the disciples saw what he did in private. And it says he came out and went as he was wont, or as he was, as it was his, his habit, his custom. They had seen Jesus Christ go out and do what he was about to do, which is seek God in prayer. It, so it says he came out and went as he wont to the Mount of Olives... And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So what Jesus Christ is saying is it's not about, he's saying it's about your will, Father. It's about what you want. Now, Father, if there's some other way, I would rather not do it like this. And you say, well, I don't really understand, you know, God and his sovereignty and God and his omniscience, how he could know what's coming, but he's still praying that it won't happen. Uh, that's, that's up for you to try to understand, because I don't know that I fully understand that either. But my best explanation of this is that Jesus Christ had a human body. He was all God, we know that, but he was also all man. So as a man, then we know that he felt pain. We know that he suffered. He, he, we know that, he, that his body was, was frail. I mean, not frail in the sense that he was weak, but it was killable. His body was not um, made of stone. He had a body with flesh just like you and I. And so in his, I, th- I, I believe that probably as a man... Jesus Christ was saying, I would rather not have to go through this. Now, is he saying, I don't want to save these people? No. But he's saying, if there's another way, Lord. Father, if there's a different way, then I'm asking that you allow that to take place. But what I want you to notice, though, is that he's praying for God's will. It doesn't mean he doesn't express his desire. If Christ did, did this, it means it must be acceptable in the sight of the Father. Have you ever prayed for something that was a strong desire, but you weren't sure that whether or not it was God's will? You ever prayed for someone to be healed, and you're not sure if that's God's will, but you sure do strongly hope that it happens? Yes. So it's not wrong for us to express those things, but in the end, we must still submit to the will of the Father. It was obviously not his father's will to let the cup pass from him. 
Um, but it is what happens after that kind of caught my attention. Look at verse 43. After he prays for God's will, nevertheless, not my will, verse 43, and there appeared, unto, and, and appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. So what we know then by the angel coming to him was that he gets an answer right away. He gets his answer. The angel comes to minister to him and it says, strengthening him. So the angel does not come down and say, son of God, your father said it's okay. The cup can pass from you. He'll figure out a different way. No, it says the angel comes and strengthens him. So we know that his answer from his father is basically this. I won't keep you from this cup. I will not keep you out of this storm, but I will give you the resources to endure the storm. I won't let you, I will not let this cup pass from you because this is God's, the father's perfect will, but I will give you strength when I give you the answer. See, humanly speaking, it's not what Jesus Christ, the man, wanted to endure. He felt every nail. He experienced every crash of the whip. He was hung in shame for all to see, including his mother. No one would want to go through that. And in the end, he prays to his father to see if there's any other way. And his father says, this is the cup. And he sends an angel to strengthen him for what he's about to face. And it is Christ's obedient response that stands out to me here. Because we know that very soon after this, it says in verse 45, he rose up from prayer. And he started moving in the direction that God gave him the answer to move. We know based on Philippians 2 that he fashioned himself as a man and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's one thing to pray for God's sovereign will, but it's another to accept the answer in a way that pleases God. But I believe that is the major focus of what it means to pray for God's will. It's a willingness to be content whether the answer is yes or no. We, see, we come before the Father, we tell Him what we want, then we trust Him to give the answer that's best for us. And when God in His sovereignty gives His answer, we then simply pray that we trust Him to provide the strength for us to completely and perfectly obey. And I think that's probably a pretty good example of what Jesus Christ was trying to get his disciples to learn. And the reason that, well, let me give you some background here. I've been reading a book by R.C. Sproul, The Prayer of the Lord, and much of the material that that I'm using tonight specifically is from his book, and he says there are three types of God's will. And then he gives the following definitions and explanations. He says there's a sovereign will of God. And this is the will that causes whatever God decrees to come to pass. So if you think about it this way, when God uh, in Genesis 1, he willed the universe to be created. He said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. Why? Because of God's sovereign will. Whatever God wants to be done, if he decrees it, then it will be done. It was instantly fulfilled. Jesus Christ as the Son of God and God himself bears the same power. And when he came there uh, to Lazarus and he spoke that Lazarus would come forth, guess what happened? Just like that, Lazarus comes forth. So God's sovereign will is whatever he speaks, whatever he decrees, that takes place. 
But then, and this is the word that's a little different, the preceptive will. This is according, again, to R.C. Sproul, but I just like the way he explained it. The preceptive will, if you think of the word precept, the preceptive will. And a precept is a general rule intended to regulate behavior or thought. So if I give my children precepts, those are rules by which the jet children are supposed to behave every day. Precepts. So the preceptive will, God's law is preceptive. It's based on rules to regulate our behavior. If you think about the Ten Commandments, they are precepts. It's God's will that you honor your father and honor and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So God has a preceptive will. He basically then, and his preceptive will says, this is what I want you to do. This is how you should live. The Ten Commandments, my law, my commandments, those are precepts. And that is my will for your life. So as God's children, we live in his preceptive will, except when we step outside of it and we break his preceptive will. And then he says, Sproul says, then the third is his disposition, considering his disposition, and that is what is pleasing or displeasing to God. Again, I talked earlier about what my wife likes or what she doesn't like, where there are certain things about God that reveal his nature. What does his general nature or disposition prefer? So I want to take those three and apply it to 2 Peter 3, 9, a verse uh, in 2 Peter that kind of will help us to know maybe how these, we can use these to interpret. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is, as men, I'm sorry, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing, there's the word, we're talking about God's will, right? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you say, okay, well, what, what part of God's will is, is conducting that or driving that? Is it his sovereign will that he just speaks and it, that, and it happens? Or is his, it his preceptive will that these are the things that he wants us to abide by? Or is it part of his disposition? Well, this is just what he prefers. Well, we could take that word willing and consider if, if it refers to God's sovereign will in 2 Peter 3, 9, that men should come to God, that no man should perish. God is not willing that any should perish. If that refers to God's sovereign will, it means that God doesn't want anyone to perish and no one will perish. Well, we know that people do perish. So we know it's not talking about God's sovereign will. If it means that God doesn't want anyone to perish in the preceptive sense, it means that God is saying no one should engage in the act of perishing because it's a sin. Well, but the act of perishing is not really a sin in itself. It's a result of sin. So if this verse then refers to God's disposition, it means that it displeases God that not everyone would enjoy the benefits of salvation. And that sounds a lot more likely. We know that it's not God's sovereign will. He's not going to say, no one should perish. You're not allowed to perish and you will not. I decree it. We know that doesn't happen. We know it's not part of his preceptive will that it's a sin if you perish, therefore do not perish. We don't really have a choice in the matter. So we know that this is maybe a reflection of his disposition. That This is part of the, the nature of God coming out in that he takes no pleasure in people perishing. God is not part of God's nature to laugh at the calamity of the wicked when they die and go to hell. And we know that because we know that God so loved the world. So God is willing, God is not willing that any, any should perish. 
We know that word is talking about his disposition. So understanding very shortly those three types of God's will, sovereign, perceptive, dispositional, we have to figure out what Christ meant in Luke 11. It could be that the Lord is encouraging us to pray that God's sovereign will is done and might be accomplished. Jesus could be saying, I want you, you to be mindful that when you're on your knees, God is sovereign. When you are praying, he is God and you are not, and his will wins out in the end. And that's what we pray for. Well, we do need to be reminded of who is sovereign. Otherwise, our view of my, my view of myself becomes far too exalted. I need to be reminded. That's the reason that we talked about we pray for God's name to be hallowed. It aligns us. We need that reminder. And while I think it's an important point, I don't think that's the only point. Because if it was, Jesus Christ would have simply said, pray that the Father's will be done. Just simply pray. Here's the blanket statement. Pray that his will be done. Pray that his sovereign will is over and, it ta- and it's accomplished and then it's done. Well, the fact that Jesus Christ uses the qualifier, and we're almost done here. The fact that Jesus Christ uses the qualifier as in heaven, so in earth. And I want you to catch this. He uses that qualifier for a reason. We would have to, th- to think that Jesus Christ isn't just throwing out phrases. Right? We would have to think that Jesus Christ has an intentional reason to say, as in heaven, so in earth. So that means it's not just a blanket request. That means we're not just supposed to say, Father, let your will be done. Okay, go do it. No, he says, as in heaven, so in earth. By saying so in earth, and follow here. By saying so in earth, Jesus Christ is telling us to pray for something that doesn't always happen the way the Father would want it to happen. So, I believe we're safe to assume Christ is not saying, pray that God's sovereign will is accomplished because God's sovereign will is always accomplished. His will always happens. His sovereign will happens. In the end, he wins. What he decrees happens. I don't have to pray that God, when you speak something, I pray that it will happen. Because it does happen. I don't have to pray for that to happen. So then I think I'm safe to assume this is not talking about God's sovereign will. That I'm somehow in my prayer giving God the ability or permission to be sovereign and to allow his word to, to, come, to come forth. Now I think this is more about the perceptive will of God. Meaning that he gives us guidelines to which we conform. And think about it, those in heaven. So he says, I want the, he says pray that, that what happens on earth will happen in the same way or similar way that it happens in heaven as in heaven so in earth so think about this those in heaven angels and believers who have died those in heaven always do god's will they always do god's will now i've met some children maybe even some we took to to camp last week that they could probably find a way around it even in heaven but i think that was a joke so But the angels and believers in heaven always do God's will. They're always submissive to God. They always obey every bit of the law. There's no sin. There's no unrighteousness in heaven. Everyone there has conformed to the law of God perfectly. So without complaint, because if you complain, you probably won't last long. There's no pushback. 
Jesus' example in the Garden of Gethsemane, there on the Mount of Olives, is a perfect example of this. And I took that detour to bring us back to Jesus Christ. Because he expressed what his humanity would prefer, but when he didn't receive the answer he hoped for, he accepted God's strength to endure. See, that's where the combination of God's sovereign will and then his perceptive will come together. We are praying for God's plans to be accomplished, for God's purpose to come to pass, his sovereign will. But we are also praying that it happens on the earth the way that it happens in heaven. And in heaven, God's people accept his sovereign will and they obey it completely and perfectly. That's what we're praying for, that God's sovereign will would happen on earth the way that it happens in heaven. And not just that his will happens, but that God's people would receive whatever it is that his plans are in the right kind of way. See, what we learn from Christ is that we trust God's ultimate plans. But if we are to respond in a way that Christ did and follow the pattern of those in heaven, and I want you to get this here. If we pray that God's will would be done in heaven so, or as in heaven, so in earth. And we are the ones praying for that will when we have an answer that we may not like. And when he says yes when we wanted no, or he says no when we wanted yes, or he leads in a way that we didn't really see coming, then if we are to respond in a way that they do in heaven, then we must follow his plan without deviation. We must accept his answers without complaint. We must trust his purposes without manipulation. We must live as those in heaven that do not question or grow angry or get bitter when God's will does not match up with what we prefer. Because here's Jesus Christ in the garden praying for one thing that he prefers but submitting to his Father's will when that was the answer. And honestly, I think we're probably not very good at accepting God's answers when they don't match up with our preferences. We must not, if we are to, if we are to respond as those in heaven, then we must not resent God for not answering something in our time frame. We cannot, we, we must not uh, resent God for answering a request the opposite way that we wanted. I wonder if this prayer request is less about God's will taking place, because his will will take place, and more about God's people accepting God's will when they don't get the answers they prefer. Should we pray for God's will to be done on earth no matter what? Yes. We absolutely should. We should pray that God's purposes are advanced. We should pray that his kingdom grows. We should pray that souls everywhere hear and submit to the gospel. We should pray that people would live in righteousness and follow the Father. We should pray for God's sovereign will to be done. But if it's done in earth, as it is in heaven, that means that God's people accept his answer without bitterness. It means that God's people receive his direction without throwing a fit. It means they follow his path without deviation. It means they submit to his leading without stubbornness. 
And I believe that when we pray, thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth, it is less about God's will being accomplished, although that's part of it for sure. But it's also maybe even more about our response when God's will does not align with our preferences. See, remember, we've already aligned our thinking by praying, hallowed be thy name. And we've already submitted to his purposes by praying, thy kingdom come. So by the time we get to his, your, thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth, it may be more just a reminder that if he gives me something I don't want, I accept it because he's God. And I've already been reminded twice. His name is holy. His kingdom should be my first priority. And his will should be what I want or what I submit to. See, are you praying for something outside of God's revealed will? Right now, on your prayer list, some of you are praying for the service to end, but on your, on your prayer list, are you praying for something outside of God's will, his revealed will? Because I can guarantee you that he's not going to be answering requests outside of his revealed will uh, if you are praying for something selfishly. Are you praying for something with the wrong motives? Two, are you praying right now for something to happen and growing angry that God doesn't seem to be leading? Are you praying right now and growing resentful that he's leading on a different time frame than you expected? Are you praying for something right now and growing angry that it looks like he might be answering your request in the exact opposite way than you wanted? Have you received a clear answer and yet you're complaining in your heart or resenting in your spirit? You know, we should pray for God's will to be done on earth, but we should also pray that God would allow us on earth to respond to his will with a contented trust because that's what those in heaven do. So when his will doesn't align with your preferences then that's where the real test begins. That's when we find out just how submitted we are to his will. But let me just remind you, we have an example in Jesus Christ who had a preference, but God's will was different. And if anybody has a right to throw a fit, if anybody has a right to get his way, it's the second person of the Trinity. And yet he didn't. He was found in fashion as a man. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And because of his submission in a place where his preferences were different within God's will, then what does it say there in Philippians 2? Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Listen, God will bless you if you will learn how to submit to his will when it goes against your preferences. We have an example from God's own son that shows us how to do it. And here's the great thing. Again, let me just remind you there in verse 43 of Luke 22, that God didn't just leave him alone and say, no, this is my will, go do it. You know, he sent an angel to minister to him and give him the strength. So whatever it is that God's will is sending you to do, he's not leaving you alone in it. His strength, as you, you submit to it, he gives you the strength for it. So it's a win all around. I know it's not easy. But we know that God will provide for us when his will and our preferences don't line up, as long as we submit. Thank you for your attention. Let's
We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.